will be in Numbers 2, verses 1 through 34 this morning. I invite you to take your copies of God's Word and follow along with me uh, as we read. Hear the Word of God. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, The people of Israel shall camp each day, each by his own standard, with the banners of their fathers' houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. Those to camp on the east side toward the sunrise shall be the standard of the camp of Judah by their companies, the chief of the people of Judah being Nashon, the son of Amminadab. His company is listed as 74,600. Those to camp next to him shall be the tribe of Issachar, the chief of the people of Issachar being Nethanel, the son of Zuar. His company as listed being 54,400. Then the tribe of Zebulun, the chief of the people of Zebulun being Eliab, the son of Helon. This, his company as listed being 57,400. All those listed at the camp of Judah by their companies were 186,400. They shall set out first on the march. On the south side shall be the standard of the camp of Reuben by their companies. The chief of the people of Reuben being Eliezer the son of Shadur, his company as listed as being 46,500. And those to camp next to him shall be the tribe of Simeon, the chief of the people of Simeon being Shalumiel, the son of Zerushadai, his company as listed being 59,300. Then the tribe of Gad, the people, the chief of the people of Gad being Eliasaph, the son of Ruel, his company as being listed as 45,650. All those listed at the camp of Reuben by their companies were 140, uh, 151,450. They shall set out second. Then the tent of meeting shall set out with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camps. As they camp, so shall they set out, each in position, standard by standard. On the west side shall be the standard of the camp of Ephraim. By their companies, the chief of the people of Ephraim being Elishama, the son of Amenahud, his company as listed being 40,500. And next to him shall be the tribe of Manasseh, the chief of the people of Manasseh being Gamaliel, the son of Pedazur, his company as listed as 32,200. Then the tribe of Benjamin, the chief of the people of Benjamin being Abaddon, the son of Gideoni. His company as listed being 35,400. All those listed at the camp of Ephraim by their companies were 108,100. They shall set out third on the march. Thus did the people of Israel according to all that the Lord commanded Moses to do. Uh, oh wait, that should be down on the bottom. Okay, so skipping 30, we're going to bring 34 down to the bottom. 25, that's all right. 25, on the north side shall be the standard of the camp of Dan by their companies, the chief of the people of Dan being Ahiezer, the son of Amishadai. His company is listed as being 62,700, and those to camp next to him shall be the tribe of Asher, the chief of the people of Asher being Pagiel, the son of Akron, his company as listed being 41,500. Then the tribe of Naphtali, the chief of the people of Naphtali being Ahira, the son of Enan, his company as listed as being 53,400. All those listed at the camp of Dan were 157,600. They shall set out last, standard by standard. 
These are the peoples of Israel as listed by their fathers' houses. All those listed in the camps by their companies were 603,550. But the Levites were not listed among the people of Israel as the Lord commanded Moses. They camped by their standards. And so they set out each one in his clan according to his father's house. Back to 34. Thus did the people of Israel according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right. As you consider this text, you might be uh, just out of breath looking at the uh, numbers and names listed there, the tribes, the chiefs. And if you haven't read chapter 1, you might be further uh, perplexed as to what's going on here. In the first chapter, we saw the uh, census, the numbering of the people, which those numbers are referred back to, and the, and the peoples and the tree and the the tribe chiefs were referred to, and they were given the task of counting the people. And the results were given. And that was the number, 603,500. And now, uh, what is numbers? Well, numbers is not just a listing of names, but it's a, it's a journey to the promised land. A journey from the wilderness of Sinai all the way to Canaan's shore and into the promised land. It's the, it's the in-between time from the giving of the law to the time where they get to the, to the uh, promised land that God had promised to Abraham. And this what used to be just Abraham and his family has now developed into hundreds of thousands of people and even into millions. So it's a great big camp of people. And they're going to they're gonna follow the Lord as he sets out. And they're going to they're gonna be given orders on how to camp and how to march and what order they're to be in and what's, the, what's it to look like. And so there's very specific instructions on both the camping and the marching and what they're to, what they're to be doing. So we're going to see here that this is very helpful to a Christian with the whole of Revelation to interpret because you see that we're going to see that this is a guide into being facing Christ uh, and what that means. And so we're going to look at what it is to follow Christ and the, and the, the hints of that in this text. And so, so, so I'll ask you this question today is uh, what do you do the first time you uh, meet somebody today? You want to uh, find out who they are. Uh, so what would be some of the things you'd ask them? So let's ask some questions here. Uh, if I'm meeting you for the first time, I might ask you, first question, what is your name? And people have name tags that says, hello, my name is so-and-so, right? So what's Jesus' name? Some people call him Emmanuel. Some people call him Jesus. Uh, he said that the New Testament says you'll, be, you'll call him the Christ. Okay, now, uh, does that have any significance to you? The Christ. Is that just Jesus' last name? Uh, or is there something more there? It's not just a last name. Uh, it's some, I, I used to think it was just the last name of Jesus. I, no, you're, not, you're not a fool for thinking that. That may be uh, communicated in a lot of ways because the significance of that title is lost on us. Uh, it's a title of his work. He is the redeemer of God's elect. He's the one promised in the covenant of grace. The redeemer of God's elect, the one promised in the covenant of grace. Uh, the new covenant. When this new covenant comes, there will be this Messiah the Christ. What does it mean, really? Messiah or Christ means anointed one. Okay? As you look at this office of redeemer, Jesus fulfills it, he fulfills it, and he's called the Christ because in Christ, the one person, the one God-man, Jesus Christ, are all three of the anointed offices of the Old Testament the prophet, the priest, and the king. And so I say here that you see those three offices in this text and how they're longing 
and begging for fulfillment in Christ. The prophet, the priest, and the king. As you, if you want to face Christ, you need to know who he is. You need to know his name. And you need to know what he does. Just like you'd ask somebody, what's your name? You'd want to know, hey, what do you do? What's your job? That's one of the ways we look at people. How do you know somebody if you don't know their name and their job? It's very hard to know people if you don't know the things that they do and what they're known for. So when you're thinking about the Christ, that's his job. The Redeemer, that's his job. But what does that look like? Prophet, priest, and king should be the things you think of. I would submit to you that that is not the first thing that's on the minds of people when you think about Jesus Christ. You might think, well, just died on the cross for my sins. Yes, this seems, it seems to be said so easily in just his one, one word. Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. Yes, what is, the, what is the significance of that, though? What is it doing? What is it accomplishing? It's, he is the prophet, the priest, and the king, the Christ, okay? So as you think about this, in the Old Testament, the prophetic office was anointed with oil. When Elijah anoints Elisha in 1 Kings 19, he brings oil and he anoints him. It sets him apart for the service as prophet, to follow him, take on his role as prophet. When you see in 1 Samuel 16, King David is anointed by Samuel with oil. When you see uh, in Exodus 28 and 30, prior to this text, speaking of the priest, Aaron, who is mentioned in verse 1 here today, in part 2, or chapter 2, 2, 1, Aaron and his ascendants, his sons, are to be anointed with oil. Anointed, set apart, for these, consecrated for these purposes, for unique service. Christ has a unique service. He is the fulfillment of all of these offices, all three. He is the Christ. His job is to redeem by fulfilling those three offices in one person. So the first point, we face the Lord. We face Christ in his organizing, or his organizing our lives according to his word. A prophet reveals the will of God for our salvation. He reveals what we need to know from God. He speaks to us directly from God, not inventing his own interpretations, but he speaks to us and reveals us the will of God for our salvation. So the prophet, this wilderness census prior, uh, it was a military census, and here we have in the second chapter uh, the beginning of instructions from God to both Moses and Aaron saying, so the Lord spoke, God spoke to Moses for the people. You see that Moses is a prophet, and he's going to tell them to order themselves in such a manner that was really majestic. Do you have the, we have the, the let's get the next PowerPoint if we got it. Uh, it's very amazing. Okay, yeah. So you've got this uh, you know, tent of meeting there. You've got the tent of meeting. And about a thousand feet in every direction, or a thousand, it's a long distance, quite a distance. You've got uh, the, the camps of the 12 tribes set in arrays of three tribes on each side, on the east, south, west, and north. So clockwise arrangement in the text. Starting with that, and the ones that are not named are the Levites, and so they're, they've got four different divisions guarding those three tribes on each direction from the tabernacle, because if they were to enter the tabernacle, to approach it and touch it, they would be killed. So they're guarding. We talked about the last week. They're the guardians of God to, to guard his visible presence. And we see here 
each of these, that you've got the Aaronic priesthood on the, on, the, on the east side. You've got the three other divisions of Levites. who are gonna, We're going to talk about them more in chapter 3. But you see these tribe names there. You've got uh, Issachar and Zebulun with Judah on this side. And, and Reuben, Simeon, and Gad down the south. Okay? And, and, for, and so on and so forth. You have the tribes. And it's beautiful, this array. It's symmetrical. It's beautiful. And so uh, Balaam, who is, uh, is, uh, you know, uh, we'll see him later in the 24th chapter, he says, how beautiful are your tents. What we're looking at, O Jacob, your dwelling places, O Israel. This is in 24.5. It says, they're like valleys that are spread out, like gardens beside a river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. You had this thousands and millions of people here arrayed according to the design of God, according to his word, and it's beautiful in the eyes of Balaam. The order is, is significant. Now, Moses would himself be a prophet, but he would speak of a prophet who would come after him. If you have your Bibles, you might turn to Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Moses was the first prophet here. It says, but it says, he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. And it's to him you shall listen. Just as you desired the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord, my God, or see this great fire anymore lest I die. The Lord said, I will raise up among them a prophet like you among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them that I command, all that I command them. And whoever will not, will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. That's what Jesus says of himself. I will raise up a prophet like him. He says, I am the fulfillment of that. Okay? Now that is the ultimate prophet, Jesus. And it says, they will listen to his words. And so, we say we will listen to his words alone, not the words of any others. He, we have no prophet but Christ. He reveals to us the words of the Lord. There are no other prophets but Christ. He is the one. They, all the previous prophets pointed to him. There are no more to come because they fulfilled in Jesus. He is the one who reveals the will of God for our salvation. So they're going to order their lives according to the words of the prophet. And we take that pattern by extension. We order our lives according to the teachings of Jesus and, the, and by extension his apostles and his prophets. The church will order itself under shepherds who follow under the shepherd Christ. And we will proclaim his word and sacraments together. And we will, we will see exercising of godly discipline for our good and for God's glory. We will be church members. That's what this means. You, Jesus says you will join into my body and, and, and we will become one. This unity is real. We will be his plan for our nurturing and for our care. That's what it is. The prophet says that. He will order your life according to his plans, not yours. He will put you in the camps that he wants you in. And he, he will call you to those camps. Some of you are called to this camp. Yeah, this is your camp. And that's that situation. He will call you to the camps and he will order you to declare his glory and for your good. Now, 
we make vows as members of the church to maintain the peace, purity, and unity of the church. You can see them on the second page there. That's the last one. The peace, purity, and unity of the church. And those vows have echoes in this text, right? Because it's the prophet's divine ordering, the church's unity, therefore, is paramount. It matters supremely. The peace, purity of the church matters supremely because we follow the prophet's word. It's not to be confusing. We're not to look like the world. We're to look holy. We're to be set apart according to the word of God. We are to, to demonstrate peace, purity, and unity and the prosperity of it. Christ is facing, or Christ facing life is what we're called to. We don't listen to anyone but Christ the prophet and what he has accomplished as a prophet in making known the will of God for our salvation. There's no other way in heaven by which man will be saved but Christ alone. Now, first he's the prophet. Now, a Christ-facing life. Now, I say Christ-facing life because if you look at the second, te- uh, second verse there, it says the people of Israel shall camp according to its standard, these, these markers of their tribes, these standards, with their banners of their houses and three or four different subdivisions or clans and face the tent of meeting on every side. There's some, there's some differences on what that word should be translated as, and different translations translate different ways. Some say that they shall camp at a distance of the tent of meeting, which is actually true according to other scripture passages, that 1,000-yard that separation between the, the tabernacle and the tribes, and they're camping. That's true. But, but the, the translation that ESV takes it as facing the tent, and so, which is also true. They're going to be facing the tent. So either way you take it, it's both right. Facing the, facing the tent of meeting and at a distance from the tent of meeting is both true and it's revealed because in that tent of meeting is where God speaks and that's where his presence dwells, the cloud of God's glory in this tent of meeting. And so to approach that cloud, as, you, as, you, as I referenced earlier in Deuteronomy 18, Moses speaks of the people's voices saying, hey, let's not go near it lest we die. In, in Leviticus 16, 1 and 2, God tells Aaron not to go into the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, without authorization, lest he die. Um, we, we need the Levites to guard the people at a distance, though facing the tabernacle, facing it, but at a distance because of our sin, because we need his uh, atonement, and which is the priest and their work, the ceremonial law is foreshadowing and preaching of Christ. We need to be near him, so we need to, we need to rest Secondly, in facing a Christ-centered life that is accomplished through what Christ has done and not what we do or what we add to. We, we face Christ by resting wholly in what our priest Christ has done and is doing and will do. Our communion and meeting with God is related entirely to what Christ the priest does, not what we do. We do not believe and then stay in this covenant by our continued good efforts and good work and then fall out of it according to our bad works, we will be judged upon one standard and it is by Christ alone and his righteousness or according to our, our righteousness. And there's only one way to the presence of God. It's by the, by the work of a mediator, Christ, who in Genesis 3 is foreshadowed when the, the, the road to the tree of life, the garden and being with God, is barred by the cherubim with the flashing sword. One would, go, would come, who would come from the woman, who would move through that flashing sword of death. And he would die, this, this priest, who would not just 
preach it as the priest of Aaron did and say, by the, uh, putting the hand on the animal and killing the animal and sprinkling the blood that our sins needed to be atoned for. No, he would be both the priest and the lamb of God who would make atonement true and real and just and righteous. And therefore, you and I can boldly approach the throne of grace and receive help in our time of need because of the great work of the priest. Not because we're worthy of it in and of ourselves, because he has declared us to be worthy of it by his, by his faithful work of priesthood. He didn't need to die for his own sins. He died for our sins. He put them on himself and died for them. And we receive his righteousness by faith. Aaron and the Levites could not do that. They could guard the way, but they could not make a way into this tent of meeting. Isn't it amazing that God could have done, he could have made any kind of building and instructed them to do anything, but as they're setting out to camp in the wilderness and to march toward the promised land, he chose a tent. He chose a tent. Why would he choose a tent of all things? A tent. It sounds rather weak, doesn't it? A tent. Well, you know why? Because that's what his people were dwelling in. A tent. A tent. He didn't choose a majestic, you know, gold and shiny building. He chose what the people were using, what they were having to use, and what they were having to endure. A tent of meeting is a tent of meeting because God, and that's a beautiful thing to call it because that's what God does with his people. In spite of their sins, he draws near to us. He meets with us. And this tent of meeting is a beautiful, wonderful thing that we can rejoice in because what they only saw at a distance and preached through these types and shadows of the tent of meeting, we've seen the true tent of meeting, have we not? When John's gospel begins, it begins with the Word who dwelt with God in eternity. And the Word was with God. And then you know what? The Word took on flesh and dwelt amongst us. And you know what the Word there is, is dwelt. It's tabernacled. It's meeting. It is the tent of meeting. He became the tent of meeting. He dwelt amongst his people in flesh. He put on what we are. He put on a tent in, the, in Numbers 2 because that's what they were in. And he put on flesh, becoming truly human, the true body and reasonable soul because that's what we are. He made us and he, and he takes on creation in order to redeem us and to dwell with us. See, the point of creation is God doesn't need us. He doesn't have to have our worship. He extends graciously his love and his glory to share it with his creation and, and those who are called according to his purposes. So as you see this, this point is that this tent of meeting is to be in the midst of the people. Facing it, as we see on this our illustration, facing the tent of meeting and when they go out to war, they are going to have the tent of meeting carried by the Levites, according to God's design, in the very midst of them. And they're going to they're gonna move through this progression given by God so the tent of meeting stays at the center. That they face the tent of meeting on front and back and on all sides, west, south, east, and north. They will be facing this tent of meeting. But the stipulations, thousand yards away. You've got to be a thousand yards away. And so um, our dwelling with God, thankfully, doesn't need to be a thousand yards away any longer. 
Because the Spirit of God brings the presence of Christ into us and us into Christ. We are mystically united to Him through faith. We truly dwell with God in a way that is unique in this new covenant reality that was not known in the old covenant. Here, what we're reading in, in Numbers chapter 2. This dwelling place is the consecrate, a concentrated presence of God, this tent of meeting. And again, it's not because God needed a place to dwell, He didn't need it, He did it to teach us. He didn't need his needs of shelter and comfort met. I'm thankful I have a beautiful, wonderful house to shelter me and comfort me. But God doesn't need it. He chose to say, make a tent of meeting and put it in the midst of your camp because we needed to learn that, that we needed God to dwell in our camp or there's no life. We needed God to dwell with us and us to dwell facing him face to face or we have no hope in this world. We're lost and we are under judgment. We need him to come and meet with us. So to dwell means this infinite, intimate association that God brings to us. He brings himself to us by instrument of a priest. And Christ not only fulfills the instrumentation of a prophet, but a priest. This tent of meeting means God dwells with us. He meets with us in an intimate way. He, it's called the tent of testimony. It's his covenant with us. And we have broken this covenant but thankfully by the heavenly Redeemer, Christ, the priest who took on flesh and dwelt among us, he has kept the covenant for us. And he takes on the, the just and righteous anger and wrath for our breaking the covenant so that we might be forgiven. And all of God's wrath might be taken off of us and atoned for in the, in the, in the Lamb of God. So you think about that. He, Jesus, a life facing Jesus again means we listen to all that he says. We unite around his ordering and we relate to him only by works of his accomplished, finished work at the cross and his resurrection on the empty tomb. We relate to Christ in that way. And there's no unauthorized approach to God. We don't just get to heaven by dying. We go through the priest, through the meteor, through the Christ who is the priest. As you consider that, consider also this, that he is not just, uh, a Christ-centered life is not just being, have him being your prophet or your priest, but he, he is your king. We should resolve to know nothing but that Christ is ours and that he is crucified. He fulfilled the priesthood, but not only that he uh, was crucified, but he rose again on the third day. And now where is he? He is ruling and reigning at the right hand. He is the king. We resolve into nothing except Christ and him crucified and risen. He's risen, not just checking out, waiting for things to unfold. He's ruling. He's reigning. He's the king. And he, we will one day see that in all its reality. He's tabernacled amongst us, yes. We're guarded from his presence no longer. But he is on the move now. Kings in the ancient years of the world fought for their people. Christ fights for his people. What's interesting about this chapter, if you look at chapters 1 and 2 in, in contrast, you see that they're very much the same numbers, but the ordering of the names is different. It begins according to chronology of Jacob's sons and tribes in the first chapter. They're just numbering them. And they skip Levi and his descendants because they're going to be the priestly class. However, so you had the, the first three sons were... 
Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, those three. And the fourth son was Judah. In the second chapter, you see that Judah is first in the order, and he is listed in the east side, which is the prime position where the sun rises. He's in the east side, and he's going to not only be in the prime position, but he's going to lead. He's going to be the very first tribe out, the descendants of Judah, to lead the way to the promised land. Now, in Genesis 49, Jacob has cursed his, his first two sons there, Levi and Simeon, because they have sinned. And then he blesses Judah, and he says that you will be like a lion. You'll be the lion of Judah. He's going to be the one who leads into the promised land. You can see that in Genesis 49. You can read the whole text, 4 through 10. I think it, actually it's 6 through 12, but, but it's right there in 49. Nonetheless, as you look at this, you see that, that this overturning of natural birth order seems to be a, a theme. David himself was like the eighth born, right? He was not the firstborn. God takes the weak things, the overlooked things. Christ was from Nazareth. No one would desire him. He takes this lion of Judah, and the next time you see the lion of Judah, he's called the lion of Judah in Revelation 5. That's the next time you see this lion of Judah. We see here that it's prefigured in his leading the troops, leading the armies out on this journey to the, to the promised land and to ultimately conquer. You see him again in the beginning of Judges, Judges 1, verses 1 and 2. Judah leads the charge of conquest. Yes, but you see in the end, Revelation 5, the line of Judah appears again. It says this. Uh, when you get to Gen- if you would turn with me to Revelation 5. It says, 5. When I, when, this is a vision that John was given. It says, Then I saw at the right hand of him who was seated on the throne of heaven a scroll. And had these seven seals. And he says, I looked at a mighty angel who proclaimed with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Great question. Who can open the seals of history and unleash it? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look upon it. And so, John says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Then it's then, verse 5, one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Numbers 2 is about Christ. Judah leading the troops forward is about Christ, the one who will open up the seals and will weep no more. That's who it is. The, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the overlooked son who became the shepherd king. He can open seven seals and lock them. And look at the next line. Verse 6 of, of, of Revelation 15. Between the, land, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders saw a lion? No, not a lion. A lamb. The lion is also the lamb. The king is the one who wins his people by dying, by sacrificing his own life and love for his people. That's the line of Judah, the one who wins through dying and through the grave and rising on the third day. He's the lamb and the lion. Worthy is he to unlock the scrolls. And it says, in, in, if you go down the page in, in verse 12, all the creatures of heaven and earth cry out, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. A life facing Christ is a life of worship. Worship of the King and giving Him the majesty and honor He has deserved. 
he sits, to him who sits on the throne in the Lamb, it says, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures say amen. This king is ruling and reigning, and he's worthy because he's delivered us. As the prophet makes, willing, uh, makes the will of God known to us, as the priest presents us to God and intercedes for us and stops us from being uh, destroyed by God's wrath, the king protects us from the enemies of God. In Revelation 19, you see this. In verse 11, John sees again heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and by a name by which is called the Word of God, Jesus. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Remember, Judah's leading the charge, and the armies are to follow behind him. It says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword which can strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of God's wrath. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now he saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their names, with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured with his false prophet who was in its presence and has done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. It says... The beast and the false prophet were thrown in the lake of fire alive with burning sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was seated on the horse. And the birds gorged their flesh. It's a nasty scene of judgment. The king bringing final justice to his enemies. And then you see, in Revelation 21, we've worked through Genesis to Revelation now. It says, he's, it says he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. This is verse 10. He showed me the great city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel inscribed. Now, note, we're in the wilderness now. We're moving to a land given by God where there's going to be a promised land, where there's going to be a, a city called Jerusalem, the city of David. And now you see the heavenly Jerusalem. And what it says, it says, On the gates were the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel inscribed. Verse 13 of Revelation 21. On the east, three gates. Who were those guys? Judah, Zebulun, right? Issachar, right? That's their names. They're on the, name, they're on the gates of the heavenly Jerusalem, right? Okay, then on the south, three gates, right? That's going to be Reuben, Levi. I'm not Levi, but Gad, Reuben, and, 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 you know, uh, Levi's guys. And on the, on, the, on the back side, on the west side, you know who that's going to be? Those are going to be the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, Manasseh and Ephraim. That's going to be their side. And then you've got on the north side, the, th- the three tribes represented by the, by the, by the uh, sons of the concubines of Jacob, Zilpah and Hilpah. Uh, those, are, those are the three uh, northern, Dan, Naphtali, Asher. Those guys, so those, okay, so the city has these gates and the 12 foundations, the 12 names, and of the 12 apostles of the Lamb are there too. How about that? We've brought it forward. In verse 15 of this chapter, it says, And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its great walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod. So there's this this symmetry in in the marching orders, in the camp orders, 
and in the heavenly vision of what the city will look like. It says, the wall was built of jasper, city of pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a gate, and the fourth emerald. The fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, and the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amherst, amethyst. So there's these twelve precious gems that represent these twelve tribes, these twelve apostles. In verse 21 it says, in the twelve gates, there were twelve pearls. Each of the gates were made of a single pearl. And the, city of the, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Now, this is the key. The final word here. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, the God Almighty, the Lamb. There's no tabernacle. There's no temple. There's no marching. There's no battle. Because the battle is over and the king reigns prophet, priest, and king, the Christ, the anointed one, reigns. That day is coming. That should be astonishing, that there is no temple. That was what the whole story was centered on, was the temple. The tabernacle, the tent of meeting. God had to meet with his people through these intermediaries and these, and these barriers. No longer. No longer. We dwell with him face to face in ever-loving fellowship forevermore. That's where we're going. Christ-facing life means we know his name. He's my Christ. He's my prophet, my priest, and my king. It means I listen to what he says. I dwell with his people. It means I come to him by his grace, by his blood alone. I come to the Father through the Son. It means that I, I, I follow his, his will and I'm on a war against his enemies. I'm also on a war at this time because the battle is not, that we have not seen the fulfillment of Revelation 21 yet. We've not seen it yet. We should not cozy up to sin. We should ask forgiveness. We should repent of our sins. We should Seek to be pure and peaceful with one another and at unity with one another. That's what Christ is about. Reconciling heaven and earth. Reconciling Jew and Gentile. Those who are hostility to one another. Back to one another through the blood of Christ. The atonement. We go where he goes. And he makes things in heaven come to earth. And to represent and, and picture what, he, what the heavenly reality is. And he did it through, through dwelling in a tent. He did it in an army marching, and now he does it through a church that's, that, that celebrates things like the Lord's Supper and baptism and preaches the word. That's what he does it, because it's all moving forward to this day where there will be no temple. And we will follow him as our prophet, priest, and king. We will love him and know him as he is.